Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to talk about wine and the top five things you don't want to tell your parents. I got a job at a little wine bar and just absolutely fell in love with wine. It's a lot about, you know, trusting your own senses and your imagination. It's a lot about using your nose and experiencing the aromas of wine. You know, most of them honestly just aren't worth the $10 that you pay. But if you want to pay $12, you're going to get exponentially better quality. I mean, I'm, I'm involved in at least two to three road rage incidents every two weeks. Wow, that's pretty high. I think Cheez-Its, I think Cheez-Its are a more sophisticated brand than Ritz crackers. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. This is one of those episodes that I hope a lot of people listen to because our first guest really has some great information. She's traveled all over the world, tried thousands of different kinds of wine. And I think that she has such a fantastic perspective on the stories behind the wines, what you should be looking for when you're drinking one, and how to get the most out of your money. This is sommelier Sarah Tracy. So how many kinds of wine do you think you've tried? Oh my goodness. So on a busy day, I would say I can taste up to like 125 or 150 a day. If I have a big tasting event. So, um, you know, I've been in the wine industry for, I guess, nine years full time. I think it's probably too many to count, honestly. But when you taste that many, like how can how can you really sort through what's good or does that make it really easy to sort through what's good? It actually becomes an exercise in like pure just agility on your palate. It's almost mental at that point because you're right. It's so hard to taste, you know, you get palate overwhelmed. And at a certain point, you don't even really know what you're tasting anymore. So we all have little tricks the industry. I mean, obviously the number one trick is we spit out all the wine. So I think that definitely shocks a lot of people. Um, We're not actually imbibing. I drink far less wine than people probably think. And then tasting wine, it really is a muscle that you have to build. I always say it's like like going to the gym. The more you do it, you know, you pick up the tricks to kind of build your stamina and uh, it gets a little easier the more you go on that path. So by the time you get to the professional level, it just becomes like, you know, an average Tuesday. Oh yeah, like 110 wines today. Cool. Of, of all those, let's say you taste 100, just for yeah. an easy number to round into. How many of them would you say like a percentage wise? How many of them would you say, okay, those are actually good? You know, wine tasting is all subjective. I tell everyone that um, if you're just starting out and, you know, you're going to learn what you like and there really is no right and wrong answer and there's no good and bad. Um, every critic has their own 
you know, kind of benchmark that they're looking at. Um, but usually when I go into a big tasting, there's specific things I'm looking for. And so it's pretty easy to check off the wines that fit the bill. And I think that, you know, with wine, just like maybe with coffee or with beer or with chocolate, um, you know, there is such a thing as, you know, not good. And then there's another thing that's not for me. So at this point, you know, when you're a professional sommelier, you learn how to assess wines and sort of say, okay, well, this is a well-made wine. Uh, it's Do I like it? Not really. It's not my cup of tea. But um, kind of being able to put your own personal preferences aside if you're judging wines is really, really important. So how did you get into this? Uh, I think most people in the wine industry have a very roundabout uh, answer to this question. You know, it's not like you grow up wanting to be a ballerina or a firefighter or sommelier. Um, so for me, you know, as most, you know, young 20-something girls in New York City, I was cocktail waitressing in a hip-hop club in between gigs with my band, as you do. And... Uh, living that, you know, fast New York City lifestyle. And at a certain point, um, you know, the waitressing was, was great, but the 5 a.m., um, you know, working all night and the rowdy hip-hop crowd, like that ended up not being so great after a couple years of that. So I, you know, thought, put on my thinking cap and said, okay, if I want a you know, a waitressing opportunity that can help me make some quick cash. If I don't want to work in a hip hop club, why don't I work at a wine bar where everyone's sipping Chardonnay and in bed by 11? And so um, it really was inspired by that. I got a job at a little wine bar and just absolutely fell in love with wine. And then from there, after about a year of that, I thought, you know, I want to explore this a little bit in more depth. So I found the local winery in my town. We actually have a working winery in the middle of Manhattan called City Winery, where they crush grapes and they make wine and there's barrel aging and the whole thing. And I showed up on their doorstep and essentially begged them to hire me. <laughs> they told me to come back the next day wearing all black. And I thought, oh, great. I'm going to be tasting barrel samples with the winemaker. I'm in. And I showed up. And the first thing they taught me how to do was to empty and rinse out a spit bucket and to polish a rack <laughs> of wine glasses. Got to start somewhere. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I was in heaven. I could not have been more excited to be just at the heart of people actually making wine and tasting wine. And I was learning so much. And I just honestly kept showing up. I really think they thought after that first day that I would be out the door. Uh, but yeah, I just kept showing up and I worked really hard and I learned as much as I could and studied a lot and formed a tasting group and did all that stuff. And about, you know, after five years of city winery, I was ready to spread my wings and move on to other restaurant work. And, um, you know, a year after that, I had earned a Michelin star as a wine director of a restaurant in the middle of Manhattan. So, uh, you know, I think I'm pretty much living proof that in wine, if you, if you keep showing up, you have a positive attitude and you work really hard. Um, you can achieve success, I guess, fairly, fairly quickly compared to maybe some other professions. Okay, so listen to me butcher the pronunciation of this. A sommelier is what exactly? You nailed it. I got it right. Oh, I was gonna go sommelier, and then I heard you say it, and I was like, oh, that's not right. I gotta, I gotta try this better. I always tell people like sommelier, like yay for wine. Um, So technically, a sommelier is someone that is an expert in the sales and service of wine in a restaurant setting. Okay. 
So if you can get a restaurant to hire you to sell wine for them, you walk around to all the different tables, talk about the wine. And, and if you're in charge of selling it and storing it and serving it, you are officially a sommelier. So I think that is a really big misconception about our profession is that, you know, it's all about passing these really difficult exams. Um, that is a path that, of course, you can go down. But the word sommelier is actually a job title. It's not actually a qualification. So a lot of top sommeliers in this world, you know, have just been working in restaurants since they were very young and have just learned on the job and have never taken an exam. And a lot of master level sommeliers love, you know, the the path of certifications and qualifications and all of that. But it's truly not necessarily a prerequisite to be a sommelier. Do you have a pretty good palate? I think I do. I hope so, or else I guess I'm in the wrong line of work. <laughs> but I remember when I very first started tasting wine um, in college, I actually had a brief stint as a perfume girl on the floor of Barney's department store. I would spam behind a counter and people would come up to me and tell me, you know, kind of type of fragrance they were looking for. And I would have to, you know, spray samples and talk about the top notes and the base notes and all the different nuances of the floral and the spice. And it was so funny when I started, you know, learning how to taste wine. It was so similar to that. It's a lot about, you know, trusting your own senses and your imagination. It's a lot about using your nose and experiencing the aromas of wine, um, you know, if you want to look fancy in a wine tasting, all you got to do is, you know, swirl that wine around in your glass and take a big sniff. Everyone will think you're a total expert because that is a big part of the experience of wine. But, you know, I don't think I was an amazing, had an incredible palate from, you know, the first time I ever started tasting, but it really does get so much easier the more that you do it. Can you, I mean, if you did a blind taste testing, like, can you pick out the different kinds of wine just by, you know, the taste alone? You don't need the name of the bottle and stuff like that? Yeah, that's part of, you know, blind tasting is an exercise that we do in the wine world. It kind of keeps you honest, you know. Um, you really have to learn how to trust your own senses and not just, you know, read the description on the back of the bottle. So we're trained as wine professionals to be able to taste a wine and be able to tell you, what grape variety it's made of, um, where it's from, um, maybe the vintage of the wine, how old it is. And, you know, it's a fun party trick for sure, you know, to be able to sit down and take a taste of a wine and be able to prattle off all, you know, the attributes of it completely blind. But I do have to say, it's not a huge part of my everyday life as a psalm. It's more like something I pull out if I want to impress people. That's what I always wonder about, because I absolutely believe that people like yourself can tell the can really tell the difference. But can most people, like can the average person really tell the difference between this wine and that wine that much? You know, there's a saying that uh, no one is born a great samurai sword maker, <laughs> just like no one is born a great wine taster. So I do believe it is one of those things that anyone can really learn how to do. But you have to really, really, really focus and practice, and there's a methodology behind it. So, you know, it's not as simple as saying, oh, I can tell this is a Napa Cab from 2014 from this vineyard. You know, you're, you're, maybe your throat burns a little bit, and so you're like, oh, well, this wine probably has a higher alcohol content. Where in the world do they make wines with higher alcohol? Napa. So it becomes sort of a 
a process of elimination from the theory that you've learned about these wine regions and then kind of trusting your senses to lead you there. But I would say, you know, some people, a little known fact, women are in general more talented wine tasters than men. We have more olfactory receptors. I think it has to do with like... In the caveman days, like the woman would have to smell a predator from like 10 miles down the road as she was protecting her nest, you know? So women um, just naturally have more, um, you know, ability to pick out aromas than men do. So that's always been something that I thought was really kind of a fun fact. When, when you taste one, what are you looking for? Like what should somebody look for in a wine? Um, so to look for a high quality of wine, the first thing I do when I taste a wine, honestly, is I just take a big step back and I try to get the big picture of a wine and say, okay, is this more of a fruity wine or is it more of a savory wine? So some wines will taste or will smell or taste like blackberry, cherry, strawberry, or if it's white wine, green apple, green pear, it'll be really fruity. Um, and some wines have these really savory types of characteristics, like they might smell like leather or spice or tobacco, other things like that. So um, when I first approach a wine, I kind of try to qualify it in like one of those two categories. And that's something I think everyone can do. You know, does the wine smell and taste more like fruit or does it smell and taste more like other stuff? So that's a kind of simple way to start. And then from there, you can kind of get a little more in depth. You know, if it's a fruity wine, if it smells like cherries, is it a red cherry or a black cherry? Is it a, you know, underripe tart cherry? Is it a cherry jam? Is it a, you know, dried cherry that's really concentrated? So you can kind of have fun, you know, getting a little bit more in depth the more that you taste. But one fun, you know, helpful hint when everyone starts studying wine, they actually will tell you, go to the green market and smell everything and build up in your mind sort of a vocabulary of different scents. So you could say, you know, oh, wow, this wine, like, this smells like a tarragon because I remember what tarragon smells like because I smelled it at the green market last weekend. So I think that's one, you know, really helpful hint. It's just kind of learn what different things smell and taste like. And then when you have a glass of wine in front of you, it's kind of easier to match the uh, aromas and flavors to something you recently tasted. What is your unpopular wine opinion? My unpopular wine opinion? Hmm, that's such a good question. Um, I guess the idea that I don't think you should necessarily have a favorite wine. I think that you should always be looking to try something new. I met a winemaker once and he gave me that advice. He said, you know, whenever I meet a winemaker and I get to interview them, I do ask them, you know, when you're not drinking your wine, what do you drink? And just like you might ask a rock star, like what are their bands they listen to? It's interesting to me. And he said, you know, I just make it a point to never buy the same wine twice. And I never buy a case of anything. I really like to always be exploring and always be experiencing wines from different parts of the world. And so people ask me a lot, you know, what my favorite wine is or what my house wine is or what my go-to is. And I guess my unpopular opinion is I don't really have one. I, I try to actually consciously stay away from wines that I've tried and loved because I don't know if you only ever eat chocolate ice cream, you might be missing out on that rocky road that you've never tasted. So that's sort of how I approach, you know, the wines that I choose when I'm drinking on my free time. Is it a competitive industry to be a sommelier? 
It's very, very competitive. I think one thing that, um, you know, it's just important to mention in this day and age that, you know, it's vastly male dominated. Um, only about 17% of the highest level of master qualified sommeliers are women. Um, probably about 37% industry wide are women. So, you know, when you are in a position at a restaurant where maybe it's a high end steakhouse and you're poaching, you know, tables full of these like power dinners where people really want to throw down money, um, it can be a little bit hard as a, as a woman to get the respect of the guests, depending on their background and their perspective. More than once I've approached a table and they've asked me to send a sommelier over assuming that I'm the hostess or something like that. And so I think um, I'm constantly sort of, you know, trying to open people's minds. You know, I think a lot of people think of a sommelier and they think of like a French guy in a suit. Um, that's not necessarily the way the industry is moving in terms of the future. So um, I would say it is it is pretty competitive and, um, you know, it's not as glamorous as it looks. I think that a lot of people imagine a sommelier, you know, just sitting around like tasting wine in a fancy cellar all day or gallivanting through vineyards. And a lot of it is, you know, lifting heavy cases, um, moving crates of wine around, organizing wine. You're constantly in your spreadsheet trying to keep track of inventory and crush your profit margins. And there's a lot of kind of non-glamorous parts of it. So I do think it's in a way, it's a little bit of a self-selecting profession, <laughs> kind of the longer you can hang in there, um, you know, the higher you can rise because a lot of people, I think it, it is so difficult that after a year or two, they might just say, hmm, okay, this isn't for me. So I think that it, it can definitely be uh, competitive for sure. That was what I was imagining is a French condescending guy. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's something of the past and modern wine culture is totally moving in a different direction. Most young up and coming wine industry people, they want nothing more than to make wine welcoming and inviting and they want people to feel confident and they want people to enjoy it. And the idea that, you know, you used to have to shame people by how little they knew about wine to, you know, get them to spend their maximum budget on the bottle of wine. And, you know, I think the hospitality Hospitality industry has changed. Even in New York, there's very few like white tablecloth four-star restaurants still out there. It's more common that you might go to a kind of casual environment and get a great wine list and have a sommelier in jeans come over to the table and be really kind of excited to talk to you. So I guess if I could give anyone advice, you know, don't be afraid to talk to the salmon at a restaurant. You know, I think there's definitely sort of a bad rap of, um, you know, people thinking the sommelier exists to upsell them or to make them uncomfortable. And to that, I say really the number one thing people get wrong when they go to a restaurant and when they open that wine list is they don't like to say what their budget is. And that I think is a big part of a miscommunication or misconception about, you know, sommelier maybe trying to upsell you. People will tell me, oh, I went to this restaurant the other night. The psalm, like, you know, was recommending this bottle that was $200 and I only wanted to spend 75 I felt super uncomfortable. And I'll say, okay, well, did you tell him you wanted to spend $75? And they're like, no. And I was like, okay, well, if the average consumer at that restaurant is 
in that $200 range and you're not giving them any other information to go off of, of course, that's what they're going to recommend. So I would say, you know, you don't necessarily have to mention your price out loud, but you know, point to an item on the menu that's kind of in the price range you're looking for and just tell them, hey, something in this price range is, is what we're looking for tonight. What is the, I mean, wine seems to be kind of intimidating. What's the best way for me to look like I know what I'm talking about <laughs> without actually knowing it? I would say, um, you know, see, seek out maybe a local wine tasting in your area. I mean, there are so many free wine tastings. Just maybe even your local wine shop might have, you know, two or three nights a week, like a free tasting opportunity. So I would say, you know, the best way to kind of look like you know what you're doing is, you know, find one wine that you discover that you really like and, you know, learn how to say two or three things about it that you like. A lot of people know what they like, but they can't describe what it, what it is about the wine they like or why they like it. So you could say, um, you know, you go to your local wine shop, they have a free tasting. It's, you know, Pinot Noir around the world and you taste one from France and you taste one from Oregon and you taste one from California. Let's say you just really like the one from Oregon, you know, ask the person leaving the tasting, Hey, you know, describe this wine to me. Tell me a little bit more about it. You know, remember what they say. And the next time, you know, you're in a shop or a restaurant, you can say, well, I had a great Oregon Pinot Noir last week and mm. it was bright and it was dry and, you know, you'll have ways you can describe it. Um, so I think tasting wine and like taking advantage of free tasting opportunities is a really, really, really great way to just pick up some buzzwords that you can throw around. Um, the beautiful thing about wine is if, if you're a total beginner, it does not take a lot to really elevate your mind smarts. You can learn like two or three things and all of a sudden it's like the whole world is open to you. Do people when you're, you know, when you're on a table, do people ever try to impress the other people at the table, but they end up saying something that you know is like completely wrong? All the time. And part of good hospitality, you smile, you nod, you affirm the guest decision. Um, and then maybe later you might, you know, whisper in it, hey, you know. Mad Dog 2020 is not actually a wine kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think a lot of my colleagues would say, like, don't even bother correcting someone. Like, never put them on the spot in front of their guests, you know. Um I think is something that's starting to happen too, which is just really unfortunate is like sometimes I'll be approaching a table and they'll, they'll tell me they don't need my help. They'll kind of shoo me away. And then I'll see uh, the guy take out his iPhone and start Googling random wines on the wine menu. And that's so disheartening. You're just like, Oh, I've worked so hard to study every single wine on this list. And I met the winemaker and I tried the wines with all the different dishes from our chef. And you're really, really qualified to help them. How much does the cost of it influence people's perception? I'm not talking about yours, but I'm talking about in the sense of like the general public, right? Is there a, oh, a lot, um, you know, cost perception is huge. I think a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of things that drive pricing. So like any other thing in the world, I mean, supply and demand is probably the number one thing. So if there's a tiny little winery, they barely make any wine. Maybe they make a thousand cases of something, which is not a lot in the wine world. And it gets crazy good reviews from these top critics. And all of a sudden it becomes a cult wine that everybody wants. They're going to be able to charge a lot of money for that wine. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like it better than 
the $20 bottle? Maybe not. So I think a lot of that is, um, you know, there is some, such a thing as like, it's good for the price or it's a great wine when you're looking at inexpensive wine. So there's, you know, sometimes where I'm like, Ooh, this is kind of an inexpensive bottle, but it's really good for what it is. And if they had charged, you know, four times that amount, I wouldn't be impressed. So I think you have to take pricing into context a little bit. And, you know, the best way to find high value in wine, honestly, is to look at wine regions that are a little less popular. So instead of, you know, looking at Bordeaux in France, you might look at, you know, a little baby region in the south of France called the Languedoc and it's less in demand. So they're going to have a really, really reasonable pricing. They might have, you know, comparable quality. So um, wine is a lot like real estate. You know, if you go outside the hot, you know, trendy high value area, you might find equally wonderful things just at a lower price. So up and coming regions like Chile, Argentina, New Zealand and Australia, um, even places in like California, like maybe the central coast of California or Paso Robles instead of Napa or Sonoma, you're automatically going to get a lot more value for what you're paying for the wine. Is there a sweet spot in terms of pricing? Like, okay, you buy a $20 bottle, it's not going to be that great. But you go 40 you're going to be getting a really good deal. Is there like a sweet spot at all? That's an awesome question. Um, I personally just don't advocate a lot of wines that are under $10. I find that, you know, most of them honestly just aren't worth the $10 that you pay. But if you want to pay $12, you're going to get exponentially better quality. So the number one sweet spot actually for American a wine market is between twelve and fifteen dollars. That's what everybody's looking to buy for their like random Tuesday night wine. So that's really good. Competition is great for the consumer. So if everybody's looking for a fourteen dollar bottle, you're gonna have a lot of wineries trying to deliver their best wine for fourteen bucks. So I think um a twelve to fifteen dollar range is awesome. I personally look for like 20 to 30 is my personal sweet spot. I think you can get, and cause this is like retail, like at the wine shop. Um, I think you get incredible quality. I think once you get over 30, um, over 30, over $35, you know, the, the differences in quality get a little bit harder to spot, you know, the difference between a $60 bottle and a $62 bottle might be pretty minor, but the difference between a $10 bottle and a $12 bottle is huge. That makes sense. Is there, um, like for right now, what are some of the best value wines that you're seeing out there? Uh, definitely, like I was kind of saying, is like lesser known regions. Um, I went to Bordeaux this summer, but there is a amazing region called the Côte de Bordeaux. It means the, basically the hills of Bordeaux. It's outside the, you know, really, really famous, really high end Bordeaux wine region. So it's far outside the limits of like a Pauillac or Pomerol or something like that. Uh, but these are small family farmers. They are, you know, 10 miles away from the heart of Saint-Emilion where they're making these world-class top growth wines. And they're making these like small family farmed wines that are absolutely incredible. Most of them are under $20. And they're still in the Bordeaux region. They're just not in the heart of the, the fancy part. So I think uh, I'm really excited about that region right now. Um, I also spent some time in New Zealand earlier this year. 
And New Zealand wines, if you have not gotten the chance to try them, um, they are really successful with Sauvignon Blanc right now. So very common to find good New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc at your local wine shop. But they're making awesome Pinot Noirs, really great Pinot Gris, Riesling, lots of different varieties coming out of New Zealand, wonderful Chardonnay that are um, a little lesser known. So um, super into that Chile right now is killing it with value you can get an incredible $15 bottle of Chilean wine it, it drinks like a $40 bottle from anywhere else um, are you ready for the hard questions I'm ready most expensive bottle of wine you've ever tried uh, upwards of a thousand dollars for sure was it worth it this is a this is a hard question I will give you my answer okay when you talk about wines that are that expensive, it becomes much more about the experience and less of the commodity of the actual bottle. So let's play a game. What is like your favorite sports team? Buffalo Bills. Okay. So how much would you pay for a Buffalo Bills, like the best seat for the best possible championship game? <sighs> the problem is, is that I'm a fan of the Buffalo Bills because I like their fans antics, not because of the football team. <laughs> but let's 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 say ten thousand dollars. Let's just right. Super Bowl right. half front row, middle of the field. Let's just say that. Exactly. So for you, it might be worth ten thousand dollars for that experience. For me, like I don't even is the Buffalo Bills, is it football? Is it baseball? I don't even know. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's football. It's kinda of like it's worthless to you. I I know it's for yeah. me, like I wouldn't even pay $200 for that, you know, because for me, the value isn't there because it's not something, an experience that I would savor. You know, in New York, one person might pay like $800 for a house seat to Hamilton, the musical. And, you know, my brother, who is not into musical theater, would be like, are you crazy? $800 is ridiculous. But to someone else, that might be the best $800 they ever spent. So I would say when you get to those cult wines that are so expensive, it really becomes about like what the experience worth to you and the bragging rights and the photos and like all the other things that go into it. If you're a big collector, um, you think that that wine is really going to appreciate in value. A lot of collectors, they spend a lot of money on wines they're never going to drink, but they know if they buy it now, they sell it for 10 years. They're able to sell it for three times what they bought it for. It's an excellent investment. So there's a lot of those kinds of factors that go into wine pricing, but those crazy high end wines, um, it really, is more about the experience and you know what's the, what that's worth best movie about wines Ooh, you know i don't think wine really lends itself that well to cinematic i don't think i've seen a wine movie that i loved i have to tell you the most famous one is obviously sideways um when sideways came out you know, I wasn't even old enough to drink. I had no idea what, you know, anything about wine became kind of a cult classic. And everyone likes to quote the, uh, the line about, I'm yeah. not drinking any thing Merlot. Um, that's, you know, just become like lore and it actually totally killed sales of Merlot in the U S for like 15 years. Isn't that amazing? I had read that before. Crazy, Yes. And now, you know, people are just now starting to, you know, replant Merlot and try to work with it again because it's actually a really wonderful grape. But it's pretty amazing how um, the... 
it just destroyed it like that. The cultural, you know, aspect of it. I do have to say the best, like really bad movie about wine, but it's, it's like a guilty pleasure. It's so good. It's called bottle shock. If you haven't seen it, it's not a great movie, but it is so entertaining. And, uh, it is talking about the judgment of Paris, which was a wine contest in 1976 between France and America. And, uh, kind of what happened from there. So you have all these like, you know, crazy hippie kids that move out to California that just want to be farmers and work in vineyards. And they're making these wines that are end up winning against these like top level French wines. It's a really, really entertaining movie. It's called bottle shock. It's essentially what put Napa on the map, right? That's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, what a lot of people don't realize about Napa and the U S in general is that, you know, in America, we don't have a huge grape growing history um, around like the gold rush era, like the mid like 1800s. Um, everyone was going out to California and make their fortune. So a lot of grapes started to be planted at that time. But then prohibition came along. And for 14 years, it was illegal to drink wine, sell wine, make wine. 14 years, it's a long time. And so it really killed whatever industry had started to grow. And it wasn't until like the 1960s when it really started to regenerate itself. So, you know, really, you know, 1960s, 1970s, that's when California really first got on the world stage. And that's not a long time ago. So, you know, people talk about French wine, Italian wine, and they try to compare American wine to those wines. And it's, it's difficult because, you know, I went to an Italian winery. It's their 32nd generation in the same family. You know, the winery has been around since the 1300s and we don't have anything like that here. So I think, you know, in terms of American wines, you know, we're still so young. We're still babies kind of in terms of our winemaking past. It's very exciting. We'll, we'll see what happens in the future. Is there, is there a type of wine that people kind of look down on or consider to be better? Like, oh, you're drinking Pinot, you should drink Rosé. I mean, is there any difference between them or is it just, is one considered to be better than the others? I would say there is a thing right now that I found to be true, that Americans like to talk dry but drink sweet. So everyone thinks the trendy thing is to ask for a dry wine, which means a wine that has all of the sugar, the natural sugar in the grapes. It's all been fermented out into alcohol. There's no sugar left over in the mix. So people will say, I want a dry wine. Meow, meow, meow. And then you look at what's actually the best selling wine in the U S and a lot of the wines that are selling the best do you actually have a good amount of sweetness to them? So that's a little bit of a myth that we're always trying to debunk. You know, sweetness in wine isn't a bad thing. Um, Americans are so used to everything from we're raised on Coca-Cola to, you know, ketchup and like all of the processed foods that we've always eaten, you know, have a lot of sugar. So the American palate's probably, you know, predisposed to like things that are sweeter. And um, I would say sweet wines, Generally, I think are looked down upon by a lot of people. Um, and for me, there's no reason for that. If it's a beautifully made, incredibly delicious sweet wine, I will drink it all day long. How do you feel about wine in a box? I love it. Do you? Um, I thought you wouldn't like it. 
Yeah, wines in boxes, wines in cans, wines in all these alternative packaging. You know, one thing to remember is that the, the packaging itself doesn't really tell you a lot about the juice inside. So you can have, you know, a really horrible wine in a glass bottle and a really great wine. You can have a really horrible wine in a box and a really incredibly beautifully made wine in a box. Um, one thing that's nice about box wine is I think we're all sort of looking towards sustainability and being kinder to the environment. And a box wine uses way less material than glass bottles. It's got a lighter carbon footprint. It's lighter to ship it. Um, it's great if you're not going to drink a whole bottle every night. You can just have a glass and, you know, the rest of the box is good for like another six weeks or something like that. Um, last Thanksgiving, I co-hosted with um, a couple other friends that are all in the wine and spirits industry. And we actually got a bunch of boxes of wine and we decanted them into really pretty decanters and we put them out of the table and we didn't tell anybody. And everyone's favorite wine of the night ended up being that wine from a box. Franzie is coming back. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even Franzia. I think that's what gets kind of fun is that a lot of like really premium wineries are starting to, you know, explore these alternative packagings. I think, you know, maybe even 10 years ago, people were horrified to see a screw cap. Yeah. You know, didn't have a natural cork. They just like, are about to faint, you know, with shock. And now screw caps are not a big deal. So I think, you know, the public perception will change, but there's a lot of really high quality wines being put in boxes and cans now. And a lot of them are much more environmentally friendly than bottles. That's all I got. What's, uh, what's coming up next for you? What's coming next for me? So yeah, I guess I'm in the heart of holiday season right now. So everybody wants to know, you know, what wine they should be drinking with their Thanksgiving meal or what wine they should choose for New Year's. So I'm working on a lot of projects and articles around that. If you go to my website, which is the lushlife.xyz, um, I just did a Thanksgiving wine guide for the Food Network and I did a different one for Martha Stewart. Uh, so lots of good like holiday wine recommendations and just lots of good sort of common sense, real people, wine information in general, if you visit my site and look at some of my articles. I want to thank Sarah so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we have also included links to her website on the RSS feed that's on there's podcast. If you want to get like some of the specific names for different kinds of wines for different occasions, She's really got some fantastic information on that website. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shull a call. He texted me a minute ago saying that he would be ready in 10 minutes. It's been four minutes. Let's see if he's ready to go. Nicholas Vinzant. Do you know my middle name? Oh, uh, I feel like I do, but I, I'm going to be completely wrong in my guess, so I guess I don't. We'll give it a guess. Is it Christian? It does start with a C. That's kind of close. Isn't yours something ridiculous like Euclid or something like that? <laughs> it is, yes. It is Euclid. Is it really? It is, yep. <laughs> is yours like Casper or something or it's, something weird like that? It's Casmer, which is a traditionally Polish name. Yours is really Euclid? <laughs> yes. No. 
No, uh, no. I mean, yours is just almost as ridiculous. No, Kazmara is a traditional Polish name. What is Euclid? It's a street. Euclid. <laughs> You're named after a street. A well-known. Uh, well, not anymore. But it used to be a well-known Germish, uh, Germish, uh, <laughs> German name. So did it? I feel like that's not true at all. Uh, look up. It used to be. Uh, have you ever heard of Euclid, the Greek slash German? Uh, mathematician. Mm, I didn't know he was German. He's probably more Greek. Greek and German seems like a very odd combination around that time. You didn't really travel all that much. I mean, I was an well, ancient history major. I, I, so you know, what would I know? <laughs> of course, you've done so much with your degree. By the way, I just want to point that out. I really have. Really put those history classes to use. How many clocks do you have in your house? Just the number. What else would you give me? Well, I, I guess there's a difference to me in the number of clocks that I have or the number of clocks that have the correct time on them. Ooh, okay. That's what, okay, give me the total number of clocks. If I'm just if I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I would say I probably have 10 to 15 clocks in my house. You think you have one a room? Yes, I how, know I do. How what, what's the time variation? between the different clocks like are they all pretty close within a couple of minutes or can it be 115 in one room and like 155 in another room i would say every clock in my house is within five minutes except for mine on my nightstand which i have set 30 minutes fast so i you know make sure to hear it and get up in the morning i've never understood the point of that because you know that it's 30 minutes fast well, and it, to be honest, it doesn't really matter anymore because my daughter wakes me up in the morning, so she's like my, my alarm clock, but I, I still set it like a jackass, so. I could see that. I could see that. I mean, <laughs> what percentage of things would you say that you do like a jackass? Oh, that's a tough, that's a tough one to answer. I, I would I would rather ask, what do you think the percentage of what everyone does they are like jackasses in doing. Like what, 20% of the world? No, I would say 80 to 85% of most things that people do, they do like a jackass. The only difference is is that people just kind of get used to your level of jackassness, right? Eventually, like, you, you just get used to, oh, that's how Steve does it. But when you first meet <laughs> Steve, Steve does it like a jackass. No, I think the number is really high. I think we just get used to people being jackasses. But then I think that goes deeper into the, the, the question of, is that just like who a person is uh, in terms of the way they are and the way they do things? And that doesn't make them a jackass. They just do things differently. Well, I consider anyone who does things differently than I do, and I think most people would consider that person to be a jackass. I mean, look on the road, right? When you're driving, the percent, the high, look at how high the number of jackasses are on the road. Most of the time, their behavior can be explained by what they're trying to accomplish, but they're doing something different than you, so they seem like a jackass. I mean, I'm, I'm involved in at least two to three road rage incidents every two weeks. Wow, that's pretty high. And by road rage, I mean at least two out of the three of those is me just yelling at myself in my own car. Yeah, I can see that. I could actually see you looking in the rearview mirror in your own eyes and screaming at yourself. <laughs> 
Or like I call somebody on the phone just to complain about the person in front of me while I don't pass that person <laughs> because I'm just that much of a pussy on I, the roads. I could see that. Uh, do you are you ready with your segment? Sure. Let's uh, let's do it up. Wow! Don't don't. Let's shake and bake. A little bit better. Give me one more. You go high, I go low. We'll meet in the middle. No, that really didn't have anything to do with the first two. Give me a better one. Uh, we'll knock elbows. I've never even heard that. You're the peanut butter to my jelly. Okay. <laughs> perfect match. All right, there we go. There we go. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> All right, so the, uh, the, the social media shout-out goes to Renee, who commented on her Facebook Top 5 poll of uh, the things that you need to have or, or that we think you need to have for uh, to be warm. And this really doesn't have anything to do with an article of clothing. She just said uh, to get out of the shit mitten. That's pretty good. I appreciate that. I also like the fact that we try to organize things around a certain topic and then reward a person for going completely around that topic. Well, to her defense, she did have one on there, if I remember right, where she says uh, the best way to get warm is to add another person's body heat. It just depends your situation, really. I mean, if you if you're on the bus headed to work, I don't think that's the best way. You mean you never just cozied up next to a complete stranger and asked them to uh, put their hand in your pants? Not after I had to go to court about it. <laughs> do Do you want to tell that story real fast? Or? No, I'm actually legally not allowed to tell that story. <laughs> All right. Well. Well. Fair enough. All right. Well. Uh, let, let's move into the the next uh, the next bundle of fun here. Wow. Okay. Huh? Uh, ombre. See, you always lose it when you try too hard. Like you're doing fine, and then you just push it too much. I know because I, I I couldn't remember the word, and then like I stuttered a little bit, and then I I fucking just threw it out at you. What are you doing there when you when you try too hard like that? Are you are you trying to be funny? Like, oh, okay, here I'm going to really go for it. Like, I'm going to try to make my mark on the show. Or do you run out of things to say, and so you just like get awkward? No, I wouldn't say it's the awkward part. Bendejo. <laughs> Come on, that's hilarious. It's not. I mean, I lived in Arizona. I actually know what that word means. <laughs> I don't think you actually know what it means. I have no idea what it means. Let, let's learn something. Uh, the educational part of Profoundly Pointless brought to you uh, by Long John Silvers. What does Bendejo mean? I'm going to go ahead and skip that. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. So uh, the first you have to pick, uh, Cheez-Its or Ritz crackers? Ooh. I think Cheez-Its. I think Cheez-Its are a more sophisticated brand than Ritz crackers. Yeah, it's Cheez-Its. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty... I don't know, a pretty easy one. Plus, there's all kinds of different Cheez-Its. There's all kinds of Ritz crackers, too. Yeah, but, like, the Ritz are just, like, it's always just a Ritz. I've never seen, like, you know, uh, baked Ritz or, like, you know, you can get, like, wavy Cheez-Its. You know what I mean? They're always just like, hey, here's some Ritz crackers. Oh, racist? (laughs) I don't know. Am I, am I, wow, I almost, 
I almost just said, am I being a cracker racist? But then I guess I am being a racist if I say that. You're basically bad-mouthing something called crackers and saying that they're worse than something that's not a cracker. John and I are both uh, identify as white non-Hispanic, so I feel like we can say these words. (laughs) I'm not even really sure uh, where this segment is going, but we're going to keep it on track here and try to rebound. Okay. uh, you're buying toilet paper. Are you going with the cheap stuff? Or are you going with the nice stuff that won't hurt your bum? No. You Have you ever used, like, really, really bad toilet paper? I wanted to say shitty, but that's always shitty after you use it. Uh, but have you ever used, like, inferior, inferior toilet paper? Heck no, Bromino. Okay, let's just move on to the last question that you have. <laughs> what? What's wrong with that, bro-ham? Okay, bro-ham's a little bit better. <laughs> All right, I don't mind bro-ham. What about bro-chacho? How do you feel about bro-chacho? <laughs> bro-chacho? Uh, the last one's kind of ridiculous, maybe not, but uh, are you going with a marker or a colored pencil? Oh, that, what are you, what are you, a marker, you asshole. Oh, I'm always going with a colored pencil. What? Where do you? What grown man just has colored pencils laying around his house? Listen, don't don't judge me. Do you go don't, and you buy know, you? You know you have them laying around your house. No, I, I don't. No, my has those. No, I don't. And my wife's a teacher, and we don't have colored pencils. You go to the store and buy colored pencils. Uh, I mean, I have them. I mean, I haven't like bought them in a or bought them in a while. Well, how long's a while? Probably a good two years. That's not true. What are you using colored pencils for all the time anyway? I don't know. Different different things. I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I mean, what are you using them for? Uh, well, the last time I used them was probably, it was actually probably last Christmas, and it was uh, for some Christmas cards. Really? Did you use yeah, multiple? Because... Did you use multiple colored pencils on the same card? Like you yes. write N? Oh, my God. I knew it. Because two years before that, we did we did pens, like those gel pens, and uh, according to some people, it smeared, so we decided to use the colored pencil instead. How many different, like what word did you put out there? How many, did, did you use a different colored pencil for every single letter? Like Noel, you used four different colors, or what did you do? No, it was like Merry Christmas, and it'd be like one word in green, one word in, in uh, you know, red. See, I don't appreciate that lack of effort. If you're going to do something like that, give me a number of different colors. Like, you need to alternate. The M is green, the E is red, the R is green, the R is red, the green, the Y is green. Don't just give me one word all in another color and then change the word. Like, put some effort into it. Listen, am I going to get a Christmas card from the Vinzances this year? I didn't get one from you last year. I know. And that was on purpose because I don't like you. Okay, are you ready for our top five? <laughs> I am, but I, I I think I messed it up. But yes, go ahead and intro it. Okay, the way I understood it was top five things you wouldn't want to tell your parents. <laughs> but for some reason, all, all of my list is like most, mostly sexual. Well, I mean... How many different – oh, well, let's hear it. Okay, what's your number five? <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> my my uh, my number five actually isn't sexual, but it's how many times you pooped or peed in the shower. Oh, at home? Yeah. I'm completely – well, I don't understand pooping in the shower. That's just ridiculous. I mean that's <laughs> – have you ever done that sober? Yeah, uh, 
Like the day after, probably yes. But you were sober, not I like mean, I, I might still be pretty drunk. Yeah, I mean, I was probably still at least half drunk. So no, I don't think I've ever done it completely sober. No. Okay, I would hope not. Did you? Actually, take that back. I have. I, I mean, I've had like I've been sick, you know, and you and, and you're in the shower and you just cough a little bit. Next thing you know, you're in a in a river of brown. You know what I mean? So you were full standing, like you didn't start to crouch. No. Okay. That's just that. Just thinking of that makes me want to throw up. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's understandable. I mean, <laughs> I don't really have any problem with people peeing in the showers. Uh, my number five would be what really happened to the car. <laughs> All right. That's uh, that that's fair. I've I, I've had a few of those instances in my past. I'm sure you have as well. Yeah, I have. I have one good story. Um, that I will sum up like this is that to this day, my now nearly 70 year old mother, her only request for me in life is to one day on her deathbed, tell her the truth about what really happened to the Buick. (laughs) And, uh, I hope you will at some point, hopefully that'll be a while from now, but hopefully you will. No, I don't think I ever will. I don't think I'll do it. You know, uh, can you tease ahead? Will you tell the Buick story next week at least? No, but I will tell you it involved getting it airborne. (laughs) And some broken struts, maybe a wheel popped off, things like that. I don't know what struts are. What's your number four? (laughs) Uh, How many times you've been arrested and or detained by the police? That's a good one. That's a good (laughs) one. I, I like that one. I didn't put it on my list. I thought it was pretty high up there, though. Uh, okay. My number four is that you got expelled from school. I mean, to me though, like that, I don't know how you hide that. I just because you know you get expelled from school. Like, what's your what's your excuse going to be? Oh, I'm I have a week off in the middle of uh, February. No, but that's like that's one of those ones where they don't even get mad at you. You just get the quiet. We're disappointed in you, and that just crushes your soul. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty damn true. That's true. Uh, what's your number three? Uh, that you uh, remember seeing your parents having sex. <laughs> that's a good one, man. That's a good one. Or that like you don't want to tell them that you've seen them naked. That's a good one. And we've all we've all been there where you know they're they're showing affection and. You're just like, oh my god! I'm just getting flashbacks of 1994, and I'm gonna go throw up now. Didn't you see your dad just wailing away at your mom? <laughs> That's uh, let's not bring that up again. I'm, I can't confirm nor deny that. But uh, what's your number three? Was it? Does this does this sound remind you of your childhood? <laughs> go lay on the floor, John. Daddy and mommy are having some fun time. <laughs> Mom and dad, what's fun time? Why are you guys always wrestling? <laughs> Dad's so much bigger than you, Mom. He's, he's going to kill you. You can't let him get on top like that and <laughs> just wail away. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope anybody listening to this either has turned it off or is throwing up at this moment. Uh, my number three is you don't want to tell your parents you don't want to be like them when you grow up. Oh, see, that's my number two. Oh, really? My number, is, yeah. my number two is then ways that they have traumatized you. 
Yeah, I th- yeah, I think uh, at least for for like my number two, it kind of goes along with the traumatized thing that you know you just hope that you never, you know, no matter how shitty your parents are, I don't think anyone ever wants to tell them like, hey, like you're a, a truly bad parent. Thanks for nothing. Do you think that bad parents know they're bad parents? Absolutely not. I I I, I honestly think that every parent thinks they're a great parent, no matter how shitty they are. I would agree with that. Uh, what's your number one? So staying on the sexual uh, theme of my list, uh, my number one is how many sexual partners you've had or how many times you've taken the uh, morning after pill. Whoa, yeah, that'd be a good one. I don't know about the sexual partners. Like, I don't think that your dad, that wouldn't be awkward. I mean, it'd still be pretty awkward. <laughs> it's like, hey, son, how many chicks you bang this week? Well, actually, that's, that's probably most American dads now that I think about it. I remember one instance in which I was uh, at home and a lady friend stayed over and my mom saw her leaving and my mom was uh, none too thrilled and my dad was like, she was cute. <laughs> my, number one is, my number one is anything sexual. I would have to say like, uh, yeah, if you had to tell them... Like I picked up an STD. I need you take. I need you to take me to the doctor. That would probably, I think, be the most awkward, non-super serious one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think even more so if you're a woman. I think it would be like, hey, I think I'm pregnant. Can like we go to the doctors? I, depend. I mean, that would depend. I feel like though that would depend too much on the circumstances. Like, there's no good circumstances to tell. Like, hey, mom. I got the clap. Can we go to see Dr. Sputnik? <laughs> First off, if there's any doctors out there that are named Sputnik, I want to know about them, so please let us know. Uh, secondly, you're uh, you're correct on that. I can't disagree with you. Yeah. Okay, what's your honorable mention? Uh, so I have drug use. We're like talking about hardcore drugs. You're an addict of some kind. Yeah, I feel like those are serious ones. Um, well, this one is not that serious because I, I don't think really anyone does it, or maybe it's or maybe it's more common than I know. But uh, telling them that you had sex with one of their friends. What if you told them that you had sex with their spouse? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, in, in some areas where they listen to this, that may actually be happening. But uh, do you know they've actually documented a massive rise? In incest-related porn on the internet, and no, and like, they're trying to figure out why that is. I, <laughs> did you actually? I mean, do you think we're actually going to have a conversation about that? I, I don't. I just want I don't to know throw why. that fact out there, see if you bounce it back. I feel like it's <laughs> hit you in a way that now you have to go clear your browser history. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. Love to hear what you guys think. I think that that sexual things are probably going to be towards the top of things that you don't want to tell your parents. But I'm sure I'm sure that people have been in some interesting situations and we'd love to hear about it.